Good afternoon, folks, and welcome to this episode of The Story Fits. I'm your host, Mike Fitzgibbons, former head football coach, longtime teacher, campus minister at Carmel Catholic High School in Mundelein, Illinois. Every time we have this show, we talk about issues of the day with local sports figures, and that's sports issues of the day. Today, my guest is Joe May, longtime teacher, coach, player, etc., 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 for Carmel Catholic and other places in, in uh, Lake County, Illinois. Joe, welcome to the Story Fits. Glad to be here. Joe, we did a we did a drive time here together a few months back, didn't we? And I'm surprised you asked me back. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Must have been Angela's idea. It had to be. Uh, Joe, you know, what we've done is we've examined various parts – of those of the sports world, you know, and tend to a Lake County taste to it, and looked at some of the positives going on because, gosh, we hear enough about the negatives. In the second part of the show, we'll talk about positive stories out there that people don't usually hear. But this is specifically this part of the show is with the guest is specifically about your views on the world of sports as you've seen it. Now, your career took you from. Being a terrier back in the day at St. Anastasia in Waukegan, where you graduated, should I tell you, say the year, 1974? Uh, you graduated in 1974. So, I mean, in the fields of, the various fields of like Bowen Field or whatever out, out there in Waukegan where you played sports, uh, but plus in the gym at St. Anastasia, through Carmel Catholic High School, your days there, where you played uh, baseball and football. And then on to college sports, where you excelled at South Alabama, where you played for former White Sox manager Eddie Stanky, didn't you? White Sox plug, I love that. I had a little White Sox plug. Um, and then back to, along to, back to the alma mater, where you coached football and, and baseball, and actually, actually were the head baseball coach for three years, and, uh, and, and won, what, two conference championships in three years? A conference championship. A conference championship, and but uh, but very very well, and and then you coach football all the way up until you retired. Correct. I mean, you even got back in last year before you retired. I jumped in halfway through the season, and uh, the, the team had been struggling, and I saw a need, saw a need for me to jump in, and I, I think there was a need, so I helped out as much as I could. Not necessarily understanding exactly what we're doing defensively or offensively, but I, I want to help out as much as I could. So sports has always been a part of my life. In fact, my mom told me many years ago, she said that I learned how to read because as, as soon as she would finish the sports section or the Tribune or the Sun-Times or both, she would hand it over to me and I would try reading. And that's how you learned? That was the only reason you were reading? That was probably the only reason. Dick and Jane really didn't do didn't do much for me. <laughs> That's the guy, as I recall, that was the way it was in high school too. I, you know, the, the class, you were quite the student. Well, quite the athlete for sure. You were a star athlete at Carmel. Were you a star student at Carmel, Joe? My freshman year, I was. 
Where are you? I had a four point plus GPA. And then high school got to me and admittedly the GPA declined. <laughs> Batting average rose, GPA declined. Batting average rose. Number of tackles per game rose. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, number of parties attended. <laughs> parties attended. And and uh that culminated I mean your Carmel years in terms of an athlete. Later on in your life, you were inducted into the Carmel Hall of Fame, Sports Hall of Fame, were you not? As a matter of fact, I think I was at the dinner sitting at your table, wasn't I? Uh, thank you. Thank you. And and regardless of the way you voted, I still got it in. <laughs> no, you know, that was a, a hugely proud moment for me, and I've always had an affection for Carmel. I was the first of nine of the 15 of us to attend Carmel. And my sister, Liz, jumped in her senior year because Holy Child and Waukegan had closed. And I absolutely loved the experience. So when, after spending 15, 17 years in the corporate world, I envisioned myself teaching and coaching, when I dreamt about it, I dreamt about nowhere but in the Carmel classroom and on the Carmel athletic fields. And that's what, and that's the way it turned out. And along the way, in the middle of that, is when you got inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, you know, I remember that. I remember that night well because that was my early years at Carmel when you were when you were an athlete on the varsity and in those sports. And so, you know, watching watching that happen, and then playing at South Alabama, you played you, you played Division One sports, and then you went and then you went on and coached. So your view of sports especially in this area, and then your own ch- children played, especially your son who's excelled in college baseball and in baseball in high school. Uh, I mean, your view of sports is certainly, if not unique, it's worth looking at in terms of 1970s to 2000 late teens. You know, there's been a lot said on this show about the differences and in, in actually the things that are very similar in sports especially the positives. So what's your overall view? I mean, now we know where you're from and what you've done. In case people out there didn't know, you'd have told them. But <laughs> if you... I didn't go to Notre Dame. Oh, you didn't I go to Notre Dame. I would have told them that for sure. <laughs> you would have told them. It's Notre Dame and Marquette, I isn't it? I hope my daughter's not listening. Yes. You know, I, the world of sports is continually evolving, but I think there are elements of it that transcend generations the camaraderie, the teamwork, which that's something I'll miss when I, when I don't continue coaching anymore. I think it's the life lessons that you learn that, that actually transcend the football field or the baseball diamond or the soccer pitch. I think it's called a pitch. It's called a pitch. With all due respect, my I think fellow soccer coach friends. Yeah, who are laughing right now out there if they're, if they're listening, and some of them are. Uh, so you're one of these, the class, the classroom extends into the field people. You're a teacher, you're a teacher. So when you're a coach, you're a teacher. I think it has to, and I think if you know how to coach, you're going to be better in the classroom. And having spent time in a classroom is going to help you on the field. I, I think the two go hand in hand. And most importantly, and this is something that certainly was driven into me as a coach at Carmel by Andy Bitto and yourself and other mentors, is you can't separate the two. And you can learn so many things on the football field that will 
teach you things about life, such as teamwork, such as sacrifice, such as humility, because everyone knows that in sports, you're humbled at many times. And when you play baseball, if you fail seven out of ten times and you play professional baseball, you're in the Hall of Fame. So so I, I just don't think you can separate the two. So life lessons that you learned yourself on the fields uh, taught you that the fields are a classroom. And then when you became a coach, you remembered that is, what you're, is basically what you're saying. Which, which is a different way of saying what we've kind of heard here. And, I, you know, I think you know my philosophy has always been that. But that has been your philosophy. And wasn't that your philosophy is particularly as a head coach? We had a couple difficult situations, and you very clearly remembered, well, this guy's going to get it later. He'll understand it later. And they did understand it later. Not enough of that going on today, but maybe, but perhaps a lot of it is. You know, we, you and I have often used the phrase, he gets it, or she gets it. He gets it, she gets it. And I think it's a general understanding that they get the bigger picture. They get that this is just a game. This is just a class. This is a moment in time. But when you understand it, understand how it impacts other people, how it impacts yourself, impacts your family, your classmates, your teammates. And you do what's right. That's the, they get it. So, so if, uh, uh, in today's world, this whole idea of I got a single to left field, we're down six runs and I round first, but I got a single and you, I'm going to do the little hoochie-coo to the, to the dugout. How would you handle that as a head coach today, Joe? I would probably pull the player aside, away from others, because I, it's my belief that you want to praise in public and punish or reprimand in private. I would pull them aside separately, put my arm around the player, and say, we don't do that here. Do you understand what that means? We're trailing. Yes, you got your hit, but you're being selfish there. You're showing that this is good for me, even though we're down six or seven runs. And they need to understand that the bigger picture is it's a team thing. And if they don't get the team thing, then as a coach, you've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, I think... uh one of the things that I was thinking about when I knew I'd ask you that question, because you and I have spoken about this so many times, I was reminded of an article I read about Paul Brown, and really the, the celebrations in the end zone did not begin in the 90s or the 2000s. They began in the late 40s and 50s, and the guys would get in the end zone and go start, and Paul Brown and the, and the Cleveland Browns never allowed it. And his, his famous line was, act like you've been there before. Hand the ball to the official and run back to the huddle. And that's really the same thing in all sports, isn't it? I mean, you hit a three, do you got to run, run down the court like, look what I just did? Aren't you supposed to run down the court and play defense? It seems to me. Well, that's what you're supposed to do. Supposed I don't really know what a three is but <laughs> because I've never hit one. I th- might have bounced one in at one time. Trivia question. How many threes did Shaquille O'Neal hit in his career? I'd say zero. 
It's one. One? He hit one. It was on last night. Did was, it bounce in? He was on Jimmy Fallon last night. It was say like, no, he hit a three. There you go. Jimmy Fallon got it wrong. But go ahead. Uh, you never hit a three, but you know what I'm talking about, running back and playing defense. Or or playing defense on the field in football, and you make a tackle, and you're running back to the huddle like, I just tackled this kid, and you're down 28 to nothing, and you're jumping up and down like you're the – I like the Paul Brown approach. Now, having played baseball for Eddie Stanky in uh, 81, 82, and he's an old-school guy. Paul Brown's an old-school guy. And this is an old-school mentality. I think that that should span from generation to generation the belief that you don't show up the other guy. Whether you're up by 28 or down by 28, I don't think you should show them up. So... Showing okay, showing up the other guy, or 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 doing what you just said, like the old school. So there's room for old school in 2018. I think there has to be. I I absolutely think things. You know, one of my favorite quotes ever. In fact, it's probably my favorite quote ever, and it's unattributed. So I will, I'll accept the citation <laughs> and the credit for it. Well, let me it listen is, to it first. It, <laughs> maybe you said it before me, yeah. which is quite likely. Uh, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Which essentially means that if I'm to learn, if I'm to do great things, I need to follow those who preceded me. And it makes perfect sense. So to lean back on Eddie Stinky and Leo Jarosher and Gene Mock and Paul Brown and George Halas, I think we have to do that because learning is learning what to do right, how to avoid doing what was wrong, and then continuing that process and trying to improve those things that we do right or fix those things we do wrong. So if I'm a young athlete in 2018 and I'm watching all this on television and and, and I see it over and over again. And YouTube. And how many times are they YouTubing it? And then Snapchat and the YouTubes to each other saying, look at this, look at this. How do you coach that to remain in YouTube and Snapchat and not, not be doing it on the field? I think that's probably the greatest challenge for coaches these days is to understand the world that our kids live in or our grandkids at this stage of the game, what world they live in and the world of immediate gratification. And if I want to learn something, I can get, to, get you that information in a minute. Whereas we had to walk to the library. I still don't know where that was at Carmel, but <laughs> I, I digress. <laughs> it's a world where, where that immediate gratification is the world that they know. And I think before, what's the, the phrase? They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If they know that you care and they know that they can trust you, and that's something I've done in the classroom every every year, the first day. If they know that you care, then they'll listen. But if they don't know or they question whether or not you care, then it's going to be tougher to sell them that old-school, appropriate behavior. So, so, okay. And now, what about preparation? I want to get into preparation a little bit. You know, off-season. I mean, given the fact that if I play a sport... Now, you, you coached my son, and, and, and I'm just using him as an example. That was already seven years ago 
that he that he graduated. So he played 2010 uh, in football and in 2010 and 11 in basketball and 11 in, in uh, volleyball. Uh, he was the only three-sport athlete out of 330 students that graduated that year at Carmel. And there aren't a lot of three-sport athletes. In your day, it was packed with three-sport athletes. So what do you do with these guys who, who want to specialize? And, and how do you coach that or coach against that or coach to that or teach to that? Aren't they what, – what, what do you believe about that, Joe? I believe that – and, you know, in the past, you, you're right, there are a lot of multi-sport athletes. As a coach, if I'm coaching baseball, I'd love to have a football player, a soccer player, a, someone who played basketball in the winter, wrestled in the winter. i love to have that because you know that they've been in games. You know that they've had experience in front of crowds. You know that they've competed and uh, Bill Taylor, the head coach at, at Carmel, head baseball coach at Carmel, he loves to have the multi-sport athletes. How can you not want a guy who has the winning run at second base in the last inning of an important high school game, how can you not want to have that hitter be someone who made a critical free throw in the state high school playoffs? You know, a three-pointer. Okay, uh, I so think you want that. So I hear that. So... But I'm one of the I'm an AAU coach, and I'm telling you that if you play more basketball instead of that baseball, you know that god awful baseball in the spring and summer, you're playing more basketball, you might get a scholarship, and you'll be a better basketball player. So what do you tell that kid? That's a great question. I wasn't prepared for this. I didn't. Here's think, what I, I didn't think we were going for there. No, actually. and that's okay. Here's here's what I would say, and, and this is this is as concise as I can be. I understand the growth of AAU sports and club sports, okay? And they have their niche. But if I speak specifically about baseball, what's going to happen in the summer is they're going to throw out bats and balls and write a lineup, and they're not going to be coached. And I don't know that the coaches are going to care necessarily about the number of pitches a pitcher throws. They're just going to do their thing try to win some hardware, and try to grow the organization. So coaching at that stage of the game is critical for these kids. You've got to protect them, but you have to teach them about the, about the game. And I call it the game within the game. And many people say, I don't really like baseball. It's too slow. It's too boring. But if you understand baseball as the game within the game, or any other sport for that matter, you're going to enjoy that game. So as a coach, playing more and more is good for the kids. That's fine. But playing 70 games a summer of baseball, I don't know that that helps you at all. Well, it's very interesting that you bring that up because uh, you mentioned enjoyment. You might be interested to know, I have Randy Oberhampton here. You know Randy. Sure. And uh, and longtime athletic director, couple great places and they started every single year for 20 years with a questionnaire to all of their publics that's players parents uh, teachers coaches everybody and they listed the things that are most important in sports okay and he said 
and okay, 20 years, the world has changed. Do you know what? By far, 20 years ago, the number one answer is still the number one answer today. Fun. Fun? Fun. They want to have fun. You see, and that's why I asked that question. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I'm thinking that where's the fun in 75 to 100 games in the offseason? Where's the fun in that when they could be playing another sport? When you were growing up, Joe, and it started getting cold out, you stopped playing baseball, and you started playing hockey or basketball outside, didn't you? Absolutely. And then it got to be, right? It got to be spring or playing football. As soon as it changed, you changed, right? Where are kids? Where are kids having fun? I, when the kids are having fun, it seems to me a lot more gets learned, a lot more gets done. If you make the preparation fun, like springtime practices before before you can go outside, baseball in a gymnasium. Did you not try to make those practices fun? Because we had to. <laughs> we absolutely even, had to. I can't even imagine. We we did little competitions. Sure, we played games. We would invent games, you know, and if I would, you're absolutely right, Fitz. If the kids aren't having fun, then why would you do it? Exactly. Why would and you do te- it? And so what are we, and like you said, we're being teachers. You want them to learn these life lessons you're talking about, about teamwork and doing things together. Are they learning anything if they're not having fun? Tell me about history. Are they learning anything if you're not making them giggle once in a while, if they're not having a great conversation with you in class? Well, learning in my class, that's a oxymoron, but uh, <laughs> I, I, I think the world— Stay wor- tuned to a later show, folks, I to find the, out what an oxymoron is. The world of academia has gained a blessing because Mr. May is no longer standing in front of the classroom. <laughs> uh you know, it's it's got to be. I played because it was fun. I played baseball. It was fun. It was always fun. And it became work a little bit in college. But, you know, your aspiration is to maybe go to the next level. And in high school, your aspiration may be to go to the next level. And if you're having fun, you're going to be better. If you're having fun, you're going to be better. Let's leave, let's leave this sequence, this section of the show, with that note. There's we'll more? be back. Story Fits. Goodnewsfitsall.com is the website. See you in a- Are you retired or near retirement? Do you want to keep a larger amount of your assets in a safe place with guaranteed interest rates to protect yourself from a huge market swing? Are you amazed at how low the interest rates are at your bank? If you said yes to any or all of those questions, you may want to call me, Matt Tomlinson, at Catholic Financial Life to discuss our guaranteed fixed rate annuities. Call 847-548-MATT, 847-548-6288. Products not available in all states. Hi, this is Wes Riccio from the Holy Family Catholic Bookstore. If you have a child, grandchild, or godchild being baptized, receiving their first Holy Communion, or being confirmed, remember that Holy Family has the area's largest selection of gifts, accessories, and supplies to make their special day more memorable. For baptism, we have cradle medals, baby Bibles, wall crosses, and nightlights. 
We have beautiful baptismal gowns and accessories, as well as invitations and cards. If you have a First Holy Communion in your family, we have a wide variety of mass books and gift sets, rosaries and medals. We have exquisite veils for the girls and ties for the boys, along with all of the necessary party supplies. Our suggestions for new confirmants include personal-sized Bibles, prayer books, and other spiritual readings that can follow them through their lifetime. And don't forget the godparents and sponsors. We have gifts and cards for them as well. The Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. Well, welcome back to this episode of The Story Fits. My name is Mike Fitzgibbons. Uh, I'm the host. My guest today is Joe May, longtime coach at Carmel High School and player, baseball, football, and uh, area commentator about the world. Uh, he just retired recently from Carmel Catholic High School as a teacher and coach there, and and uh, Joe has a long history of being a an athlete in Lake County and then a coach in Lake County. And we're ta- we were talking about having fun as a player and what it means and all those things. Joe, you had a long career, uh, first as a player and going all the way back to St. Anastasia and then at Carmel and then in college and then back to when you were coaching. And you've seen and worked with all kinds of people. So I, I try to I, you know, you knew you knew this question was coming. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Joe. Get, tell us an inspiring story from the Joe May career. Something that inspired you, a player that inspired you, a fellow player inspired you, or a time where you learned something that was cool, or whatever. Something Eddie Stanky taught you. Something Joe McPhee taught you. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Joe McPhee actually. Joe McPhee, who he was the head coach at Carmel. I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, from 70. Six years. So 75 to 81, some, somewhere along those lines. And, and in the middle of his tenure, tenure at Carmel, uh, he was my varsity coach for junior and senior year. And I loved the cut of his jib, which would be just everything about him. I thought he was, he was supportive. He was educating he was honest and he was fun he was fun so uh, i got a story for you do we have time for a story yes i want to hear a story so is this a joe mcphee story you're gonna love that yeah absolutely It's, it's joe mcphee but it's as much bob watson as it is joe mcphee so dr watson and anyone from carmel's who has ever attended or knows anything about carmel understands mr watson Dean of Disciplinarian, he was a math teacher, and he was just a fun-loving guy. So it's freshman year, and we're playing a freshman B game at, and yes, I was a B team player as a freshman. Thank you, Jim Bernardi. And so... (laughs) Oh, I shouldn't pause there. So we're playing Notre Dame, the Notre Dame freshman team at Notre Dame. And Mr. Watson, or Coach Watson, is the head coach because Brother Roy Anaveros couldn't be there. He was the head freshman coach. And we're, we lined up to punt. I was the punter. A lifelong friend of mine, Chip Collignan, was on the wing. So, and we are at our own 20-yard line. So we have 80 yards to go, which is the reason we're punting on fourth down. 
and I winked to Chip, and the ball was snapped to me, and Chip just ran into the flat freely. I catch the ball, and instead of kicking, I, I threw the ball to him, and he ran zigzagged for 60 yards down to their 20. It was the most exciting play of my freshman season, maybe the most exciting play of my varsity or my Carmel career. And no penalties. So we have this huge play, and we both ran to the sideline, and Mr. Watson was pulling his hair out, and he had enough hair to pull out at that time. And he was like, what was that? I can't believe it. What what was? I said, Coach, we got a first down. (laughs) which was one of the rare first downs we had that game. So it was the most wonderful thing. So that was on a Saturday. Fast forward to Monday, and I was in the cafeteria at Carmel and had lunch. And as I was leaving after lunch, Coach McPhee, who often monitored the cafeteria, was standing by the cafeteria doors. And he said, he looked at me and said, Joe May, come here. And he called me over with his finger and I stood up to him, and he said, quite the play you had Saturday, wasn't it? And I said, yeah, it was awesome, wasn't it? I was really excited. He said, see me before practice today. So <laughs> so we went out to practice, both Chip and I, because this was our call. Our, our call. And uh, this is the old practice field where the baseball field is now, two wooden 4 by 4 goalposts, and Coach McPhee, called us over and he said go post to go post just keep going I'll let you know when you're done we ran for two hours I might, we might have walked a little bit too but <laughs> we ran for two hours and afterward coach McPhee came up to us and said you need to understand who are the coaches and who are the players and it was a huge lesson learned huge lesson learned and it's helped me in my coaching career too so you, it was a great perspective. So you had guys, so you had guys uh, run for two hours. <laughs> uh, well, actually, you know, it, it had been a long time in my career since he had done that. Uh, would I do that today? No, it's probably not good for one's career. <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. Times have changed. But Joe McPhee th- taught me a lot too. I was a young coach, and I came in under him, and. Uh, I didn't know, as you know, as you well know, and have documented loudly, I didn't know a thing about what I was doing at, at age 20 when I started at Carmel, and uh, Joe was the head football coach then. And, uh, you know, I often say to people who want to know about him, he's the best 10-44 and 44 coach in the history of football. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yes, and he that, is. that was his record, but he was a great coach. Uh in in if you if you define coach as teacher, and you define coach because the people who walked away from dealing with him, and working with him and playing for him learned, and they learned a lot and they learned a lot about life. Did he run a football program? I mean, they, we changed offenses every week. <laughs> there's like obviously there's some things about Joe's so was so brilliant. He oh I have another idea, and it was in the playbook the next week. The the playbook was like I thought about my. I played book year, you know, some of our good years. It was like seven plays, and he's like, Joe, what are you doing? But what I learned from him, whew, he was a, yeah, he was a great, he was a great coach and a great guy. You know, I remember uh, he had long out of it, was long done, and uh, 
we went to the quarterfinals and uh, uh, my my fifth year and we we had a great season and you know, I, I remember you came back and we're actually I think you were at that game but you came in and congratulated me and he flew in on a business trip like three weeks later and called the school drove up from O'Hare at a layover and sat with us in the bleachers and just just said I just wanted to drive up and say Fitzy who would have thought that, <laughs> you know the day you got out of that car when you were 20 years old and a kid didn't know what you were doing look at look at this and he said I'm so proud to have worked with you it, it, it was a million dollars that's awesome and he didn't have to do that it's almost as if you were a player for him exactly and a, a exactly. player done well everybody who coached for him felt that way everybody co- who coached for him all his assistant coaches all felt the same way I don't remember any of them that didn't like him that's amazing. And he was, we were 10 and 44. We were horrible. But yet, we I, were we horrible? I don't know. You know, it's like uh, we got killed. You know, We and, did. We did. Yeah. The funny thing is about, about Carmel back then, and, and it is what it is, and it was what it was. But in my class, my graduating class, and we're about to celebrate our 40th reunion, we had guys walk in the hallways who – had they come out and just played their senior year and and were coached a little bit, we'd have been a lot better. There were a lot of good good athletes. And one of the challenges Carmel had back at the time, and anyone who's listening who under, understands the way the culture of the school was back then, they'd say the same thing. There were guys walking the hallways who were good athletes, maybe played basketball, baseball, maybe wrestled. Had they put on the pads and the helmet, we could have had a better program then because we weren't bad because of Coach McPhee. We just weren't that good because of the talent that we had out there. And that includes me, too. You know, I'm Hall of Fame and All-Conference and MVP and stuff like that. I was, and this was with all due respect, we might have people, people canceling to come to our 40th. I was kind of a big fish in a small pond. Uh, and it doesn't mean that I love the guys that I played with any less because that's an important thing you take away from the game too. You gain some lifelong friends, and whether you keep in contact with them over 40 or 50 years, they're still your friends. Okay, They're more than acquaintances. They're still your friends. They've sweated with you. They've bled with you. They've cried with you. And that's the cool thing about sports is that you gain those relationships and you learn about what it takes to win together and to lose together that's part of it too yeah i think i think you're right i i think there's some people who didn't want to play for him because he was such a disciplined guy and you know he said well okay <laughs> he didn't he didn't go out and we could use him these days yeah exactly exactly uh i got some stories joe i always have a story uh i'd like to Share a couple of them, and and get your get your comeback on it. Uh, there's an exciting new. This all came out this week. This lady's name is Judy Perkins. That's her name. She's an engineer from Florida, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. That was one of those fast growing. It was all over her body after a while. The chemo wasn't working, and they told her three years tops, but it's not. It's probably be faster. They wanted to stop the chemo. Then they they got her into this. Uh, new new therapy. Uh, now remember, it was in her liver. It, it was everywhere. 
they put her in a new therapy and this is the this is the science and even i get the science okay uh there's immune cells that actually try to attack the cancers in every type of cancer that your body produces immune cells it just doesn't produce enough of them so they so they took the immune cells out of her the tumor in her breast they brought them into the lab and they reproduced them at 100 miles an hour till they got billions of them and then they re-injected them with her re-injected her with them amazingly it left her body completely She's been two years free of cancer right now, and uh, the doctors, of course, say we need to do a lot of studies, but this is a very exciting thing uh, because it's the first person that, that in the history, in history that's had this type of advanced breast cancer that has not only beaten it, it survived and is very healthy right now. Wow. That's amazing. Her name is, uh, Ju- this Judy just Perkins. came out, Judy Perkins, and she's 49 years old, and she's an engineer in Florida. And she's supposed to be dead, and she's not. So, you know, we hear a lot about in the news about, you know, this is happening, this disease, and that disease. And that. Have you, if I didn't tell you that story today, would you have heard about it? And I wouldn't have. I know, and that's my point. Uh, that's why I have this show, is because where are those stories? I think everyone in the country should know who Judy Perkins is, and that's my point, Joe. Um, this one you're going to like. This mom, this little eight-year-old boy, uh, his name is uh, Jaron Johnson, eight-year-old. He's in Walmart with mom, and he finds a $100 bill. And he's excited. And now, Joe, when you were eight, if you found a $100 bill, and I was eight, I found a $100 bill, you and I would have been excited for pretty much the same reason. Uh, okay. Except that I didn't know what a hundred was. Yeah, I never saw a hundred dollars, but I would have been excited if I found a dime, and that's a fact. But Jaron Johnson was excited because he couldn't wait to find out whose it was so he could give it back to him. Because that's the way mom raised him. So in the car on the way home, they talked all the way home about calling back Walmart because she showed her in the car, and they called back Walmart. Now, flip the story. 86-year-old James Grice living on a fixed income, going to buy his groceries for the two weeks with his $100 bill. Gets in line with the groceries, can't find a $100 bill. Walks out of the Walmart without his groceries. And instead of complaining, greatest generation, of course, he said, Lord, let somebody that really needs that money be the one that finds it. Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) So the next day, of course, she's called Walmart. Walmart puts the two and two together, and then they put the two people together. He gets his groceries. The kid gets to smile and take a picture with the guy who gives back. And the guy gives the kid a $20 bill. I love it. (laughs) The random act of kindness, which gives, which Gives and gives and gives and gives. gives, and gives. Well, you know, the, the old love is a boomerang. You throw it oh out there and you know God. how it's going to come back. You know, and I'm going to, now nobody in radio land can see this, but look at that smile on that kid's face, will you? Oh, my goodness. You know, that's going to give the kids memories that will last a lifetime. And and the gentleman, that's going to give them an extra real life. Uh, how about the, the guy? The that guy's is, so happy. And, oh. And, and you know, the, the, what, the hero of that story, the kid's wonderful. But the hero of that story is the mom. Oh, absolutely. She knew what to do. She taught well. She taught him to be, be excited 
so he can give to give the money back. Because my mom was great, your mom I know was great, but I would have wanted a hundred dollar bill. Food on the table. I would want a hundred dollar bill for me. I, what would you be thinking? At the age of eight, I I don't even know. I I, I that is awesome. Okay, and, and that's the things we need to teach kids. And you could teach them that on the sports fields too. Oh, you, I'm going to give. I don't need this. This is let's give to those who need. Well, that's why when every year when we our fo- our football team against one of the schools where we have well we we kind of time it up to where we're doing a canned food drive, and the other schools always dive in and want to do it, and then we put the garbage can and the football teams bring the cans and put them in, in the cans as a symbolic gesture while everyone else is bringing cans. Yes, that's money in the bank i remember when we called bennett this year and they said oh it's our turn again like they loved it the last time like they thought we they had a turn like no it's just your home game (laughs) it's like like (laughs) but that's the way bennett was with it uh story three joe this lady uh in durham north carolina she got 76 year old wheelchair bound for 14 years electric wheelchair She's got to lock up the wheelchair to go in at night to her place. I'm not sure how she got in because of what happens in this story. But she locks it up like a bicycle in a bike lock. And one day it's gone. And she can't get anywhere. She reports it to the cops. The cops come. A detective sees the story. You know how they see the crimes. He shows up at her place with a used electric wheelchair and gives it to her. And she's like, what? Here, I have this. Then he goes outside and builds her a ramp so she doesn't need to lock it up anymore. She could just bring it right, scoot right in. And and she's like, what, what is going Well, it just so happens this tech, detective, his name is, uh, and his name's worth mentioning, Harry Gardino. He has a 28-year-old son who has cerebral palsy and has been wheelchair-bound his whole life. And every time they have a, they get a new electric wheelchair. He looks for a place to give the old one. And he was at work that day thinking, i got to figure out who we're going to give the old electric wheelchair to. And he read the story and went, oh, I know who. <laughs> he drives it over and sees that she doesn't have a ramp, so he stays and builds her a ramp. And now, and now um, Christine Burke calls Harry Gardino her guardian angel. That is great stuff. <laughs> it's like, why isn't that? <laughs> that is great stuff. Why isn't that? Hey. Uh, is that a front page story? Oh, my God. So here's the cart. You can't leapfrog the stairs, so we're going to build a ramp for you. That is that is awesome. I'm, I love that. I, the, the fact that he stayed and did that and then didn't tell her until she pressed him, why are you doing this for me? Oh, my gosh. What, well, I have a son. That's what we do. Well, that's what we do, basically. Yeah, that's a uh, well, that's a special policeman. I'll tell you that right now. Um, speaking of special, there's a place in Spring Hill called Serenity Stables, and I and I've been doing a lot of reading about this. Have you heard about all this? The horses oh, getting kids with special needs and using horse therapy, basically, where they use horseback riding as therapy. Okay, they, there's a lot of places. Similarly, I've heard, you know, dogs dog and dolphins. Thera- dog, and- do- dog therapy, dolphins. Okay, well, horse therapy is a big deal. Okay, 
Well, you got this couple. These are two very special people. Now, they love, they love uh, horses, always have. And, and they know that a lot, like they live in Amish country. Spring Hill is Amish country. And when, when, when a horse is done can't pull a wagon anymore, the, the Amish are done with them. And, and now these horses are homeless homeless horses or if people can't in that area can't take care of a horse the horse is homeless and a lot of them are starving so these two people took reti- retired young bought a, you know stables and started taking in horses and feeding them and trying to find homes for them meanwhile they also said well you know they knew about this therapy stuff so they wanted to help kids so come on in and bring your kids Okay, so here we go. Three-year-old Luke Betancourt. He didn't talk. Autism. Sensory processing disorder. Doctors said there's a chance he'd be nonverbal his whole life. So his mom hears that this place working with horses and they sometimes helps kids with autism. So she brings him to Serenity Stables. His second session there. His mom hears Luke say to a horse, walk, Rio, walk. <laughs> she bursts into tears. Wow. Rio being the horse. Rio is the horse. And then pretty soon he starts saying, walk, whoa, trot, yes, no. And after a few times there at night, good night, mama. Wow. That is awesome. <laughs> I love it. So, I love it. So, I have the same response to each, but that is just, that's beautiful stuff. Okay. Well, okay. So uh, they offer lessons, carriage rides, summer camp kids. Now, of course, now people have heard about all this and, you know, they're pumping in and people are investing in and then they're coming in droves. Okay. So they're getting more sponsorships to fund events. And, and so... Uh, Every day before he leaves the barn. This one's going to get you, Joe. Luke no, always... Gotten me. Luke, yeah, I figured. Luke always walks under uh, the stall where Rio is and stands under Rio's nose and nods his head. And Rio bends down and kisses the top of his head. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's all I needed. <laughs> I, is that? Uh, come on. Is that? What do you do? What do you do with that? Well, I think you know it, what? There's there's something special at work there. Yeah, and those two people who started that thing, uh, and and really, folks, I can Alan Bornsure and his wife, uh, Sharina Bornsure. And I'm not even sure I'm saying that right, but those two people are heroes. Well, they were definitely born sure. <laughs> they were born, born for sure. sure. <laughs> well, they were born sure that they had a purpose in life, which is awesome. And Luke and Rio are in a horse show in October together. Get out of here. <laughs> He's, like, He's going to be the rider? Yes. Oh, my gosh. That'll be great. <laughs> I wish, you know, you can't, you know, you can l- keep looking this stuff up sometimes and you can f- do some of the follow-up, but th- that is like, are you kidding? Uh, I mean, I mean <laughs> watching your, 
see folks that we've done I don't, I don't know about six shows now i'm watching the guest never knows the stories i'm going to bring up and you know they're always like you can imagine how nick was when he was sitting here going huh <laughs> you're like yeah do you realize that it takes me like four minutes to click on the ones i'm going to use i don't even you know i read them i can read them every day but then i'm like oh, oh that would be good for the show that would be good for a show uh it's real stuff, though. It's yeah. real time stuff, and 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 that's what that's what hits home, and to hit home about the beauty of people and, and the things that they're willing to do to help others. And it's all about helping others. It really is. That, that's I'm loving. It. Well, next uh, story. If you don't have another one, make it up. I don't need to make it up. Seth Scott, seventeen year old. Uh, Washington area, uh, Plano High School in the Washington, D.C. area, is uh, another never-speaking autistic kid. Now, he could speak, but he rarely ever did. But the reason his mom and dad decided to stay in that area was because when he first went to school, they were terrified because they knew of his disabilities. And he's going to a public school. He's going to special classes. But they're terrified he's going to get picked on. Not only did he not get picked on, the kids grabbed him by the hand and would show him where to go. They brought him to the cafeteria all the way through school, through high school. And they took him places and they did things. And so this was like, all right. So they have this thing where uh, at this school where the valedictorian speaks and then they pick somebody, you have to apply for it, to speak at graduation. Okay, you can already guess where this is going. His mother tells him one day, hey, they're doing this thing. Would you like to speak at graduation? No, he never talks. (laughs) Would you like to speak at graduation? He jumps out of his chair and says yes. Now... (laughs) His mother's got to now help him. He's got you. Got to go through a process. You have to go through a trial. You have to go through, for these people. They're going to become the guy. To become the guy. So he's got to practice. He's got to write it. So who does he get to help write it? You're not going to believe this. Okay, he has got a brother, Sim, who's 15, two years younger, who's a brain tumor survivor, and he's done a lot of public speaking. Being a survivor, they bring him to hospitals so to talk to others. To, to talk to others. So he's going to now work with his autistic brother and teach him to speak and help him. So he's coaching him, helping him write to speak. So he coaches him. So Steph goes, Steph goes below, in front of this board of people who don't know that he's an autistic kid that never speaks. That's part of the deal. And Which he is does, perfect. And he does his test, and they pick him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they go, they do the announcement on graduation night, and now our speaker... And everybody in the place turned and like, what? <laughs> he walks out. Flawless. Speaks flawlessly. Who rarely speaks. He never speaks. And he speaks flawlessly. People are sobbing in the audience. Standing ovation. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That is a great. It's, it's an enormous story. And the fact that. The fact that he applied for it and no one had any clue 
you yeah. know, sometimes oh. you might say, hey, you know, let's throw this let's guy throw, a bone. Throw him There's a bone. There's no need to throw him a bone. No. Okay. Oh, my. It, it makes the story even greater. And then to get up there when he barely talks. It, it rarely. Can't, not can't even. Imagine. Not even at home. And, and what kind of mom is this? Uh, by the way, this is just a side thing. She was his prom date. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, you want to spend about 20 minutes just talking to her, don't yeah, you? Absolutely. I, that's like, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, Taquan Butler. Taquan Butler. He was, uh, he's, I'm just going to start by telling you that he's going to be a freshman at Lynchburg College next year. Tennessee. Yes, and he's not going to, he had offers from, uh, Alabama, Old Dominion, Norfolk Stick, but he's going to Lynchburg because that's where he got the most money. He's almost completely going to be paid for. Now, the reason that it's important to know about Taquan Butler is because in 2006, his dad left. And uh, then they got evicted. Mom, him, and the siblings. So they started staying in abandoned homes. And in the morning, they would get ready, and they would clean up the place, and then they would all leave, and then mom would be waiting after school, and they would go to a different place. And he stayed in all these different houses, but he never missed school. He always went to school. So then <laughs> there was a time when he had bowed legs. So when he got into high school, he had to have surgery. So he gets surgery to fix the bowed legs, and he missed school. Uh, by then, are you ready for this? Mom had been arrested and imprisoned, so now he's living with Grandma. And he told Grandma, I want to go to school. I'm missing learning. I'm missing learning. That is a direct quote. So Grandma calls the school and says, we got to do something. Kid wants to go to school. So the assistant principal at the, at, at, at the high school um, Tallwood High School, a guy named Cecil Maynard, loved that story that the kid wanted to go to school as a freshman. He gets him, and he makes sure there's a law that says you got to provide transportation. Well, the only vehicles in the town that could provide transportation to him were taxi cabs. They didn't have a bus like they could get a kid who had been that they kind had of surgery. facilities, right? Yeah. So these taxi cabs drive him to school every day for months. So he goes to school, doesn't miss school ever again in all of his years in high school. He becomes a nose guard on the football team, starts, he's a great player. Didn't get a scholarship, but it was a great high school football player. And, and, and his mentor, this is the principal, Mr. Maynard, makes sure he takes AP classes. He took seven AP classes. And he, gradu he graduated with a 3.5. Uh, Without any parents. He lives with grandma now. And uh, Teens with a Purpose, that's a local youth empowerment program, honored him with an award for courage and perseverance. And uh, he chose, he didn't go to Lynch, he chose Lynchburg College because, you know, he could, he could have gone to one of the other five places. Well, he actually was accepted at 12 colleges. Why he, why he applied to 12, I don't know, but. Taquan Butler, 
you know, that's like every single show I've done, I've gotten one of these stories. And, uh, and, uh, what tremendous perseverance, I, you know, just to, to battle that and, and for, for grandma. How about that? How and about this? The, how about this? When you're a kid, to have that memory that's still burning, searing in him, in his present life, about going from abandoned house to abandoned house, and his mom—I don't know what she did wrong. She got in prison, but his mom making sure they cleaned the place up before they left in the morning, and it's an abandoned house. And who's what the, what what these places look like, right? Who knows? I, I who, to when they got there. I'm, you know, I'm, you know, so Joe, what I do, you know, what I do on the show is, is I try to, I, I bring these, and there's, I try to go global, you know, the cancer thing, and I try to go local, I try to go, you know, you know, poor, homeless, like last time we talked about this senior in high school in, in Portland, Oregon, who knew that there's a big, they were discussing this big problem they had with homeless and feeding them, and he said, well, there's a, soup kitchen right down the street from the school that barely gets used and he says because they don't have the energy and people behind it he got some seniors and then he got some teachers and then they made a club and then they got some grants and and he, basically they feed 600 people a day <laughs> and it's all done by the high school and it all started with a 70 year old kid in his class going wait a minute there's a place right down the bottom. so we do this the whole the whole story thing the point is, the show was brought up for this reason, was that where are these stories? Now, you can find them. And you know Father Glenn Snow. And, oh, gosh, yeah. But yeah. you can find them. But what, where are they every day? And why why aren't they the, the lead story in the news? But they're amongst us. And, and, and real quick, Fitz, we, we talked about how we need to lean on the, the old school and those who came before us. And I told you about my favorite quote. You know, if, if if we want to see further, we stand on the shoulders of the giants and those are the people before us. We need to listen to our kids, too. And the young and what they are doing and what they've learned. They seem to have the, a lot of the answers. Yes, yes, yes. This has been a lot of fun, Joe. Thanks a lot for being a guest on The Story Fits. Want to know more? Want to listen to a podcast? Goodnewsfitsall.com. Thanks a lot, every, it. Thanks a lot, everyone. So long, everybody. So long, everybody. <laughs>